It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. It is two strikes on Willie Wilson. Base is loaded. Two outs. What pressure on McGraw? What pressure on Wilson? October 21st. 1980, 11.29 p.m. In the 98th year in franchise history, the Philadelphia Phillies were a strike away from doing what had seemed impossible, winning the World Series. They had overcome injuries, a wild NLCS, and years of postseason frustration with a group of aging, homegrown players. Now, here they were, on the doorstep of history. The crowd will tell you what happens. But how did we get here? To understand that, we need to take it back. Welcome to Philly's Throwbacks, presented by Toyota, a new podcast from phillies.com. I'm your host, Scott Palmer. In this five-part first season, we'll take a deep dive into the 1980 Phillies. You'll hear stories from those on and around that memorable team, which 40 years ago claimed the first World Series title in franchise history. It takes a lot to win a championship. It takes more than just a great season. And to understand the story of the 1980 Phillies, we have to start nearly a decade earlier when a new era in Phillies history got underway. The year was 1972. Phillies president Bob Carpenter was stepping down from his post after nearly 30 years of leading the Phils. Just as he had taken over for his father in 1943, Bob was now handing the keys to the franchise to his 32-year-old son, Ruley. Ruley Carpenter wasted no time in making sweeping changes. In June of 1972, he replaced General Manager John Quinn with Paul Owens, the Phillies Farm System Director, affectionately called the Pope. With two baseball lifers in Carpenter and Owens at the helm, it was clear the Phillies were headed in a new direction. Larry Shank began with the Phillies PR department in 1964 when Owens was just a scout. Shank, who retired in 2015, knew what Ruley and Pope could do if they had the controls. He was a grassroots baseball person. He, he built this organization up. He was the one who was behind the theory of the complex. Players were having spring training elsewhere. And two years later, Paul convinced the Carpenter family to build the complex. And that was a huge step forward. Today, the Carpenter Complex centralizes the Phillies' minor league teams and spring training facilities in Clearwater, Florida. He knew everything about a player but his name. When he was a scout, 
he didn't sit behind home plate with the rest of the scouts. Too much jibber-jabber going on, too much comparing notes and all that. He'd sit over in right field or he'd sit over by the left field corner to see the dugout, to see how the player that he was looking at interacted with his players after a bad inning or a bad play or something like that. And he traveled as the general manager. He would go to the ballparks early and sit in the stands and watch batting practice, you know, and make notes. Replacing Pope down on the farm was former Phillies pitcher and minor league manager Dallas Green. He was large, intimidating, but he had an eye for baseball talent. We'll hear a lot more about Dallas later. With this new leadership came new direction. Chris Wheeler started with the Phillies in 1971 in public relations and went on to become a team broadcaster as well. He noticed the culture shift immediately. It became a little looser. You just felt more comfortable um, just being around everybody. You knew who the bosses were, but yet you still were able to, uh, to talk to them more. It just seemed like Bob Carpenter and John Quinn were on a different plane than those three guys we just talked about uh, when they started to run the place. Meanwhile, a young nucleus of homegrown talent that had formed under Owens and Green in the minor leagues began to take shape as these young players made their major league debuts in the early 70s. Their origin stories showed just how crafty the Phillies farm system could be. There was Larry Boa, an undersized shortstop who never made his high school baseball team, but found a way to start for Sacramento City College. Phillies scout Eddie Bachman went out to watch Boa in a doubleheader. In theory, two games should have given Bachman plenty of notes. But as Bo will tell you, the scout didn't see very much of him. We had a doubleheader, and I got kicked out of both games early. Paul Owens called him and says, how'd he do? And he says, I don't know. And he got kicked out in the third inning in the first game, and then the first inning in the second game. So I'm going to have to go back and scout him again. <laughs> Still, Bachman liked what he saw. He put together a video of Boa playing and sent it back to Paul Owens. And they put it on a sheet in their room. And he said, he said to Eddie, he says, man, he looks like he's fast. You know, he says, he runs pretty good. Uh, Eddie told him, he says, you know what, why don't you sign him as an organization guy? If he doesn't make the big leagues, he'd be good for a minor league instructor or, or a fill-in at AA or AAA anywhere you need him because he wants to play. Boa did make the big leagues. Boy, did he ever a five-time All-Star and 12-year starter for the Phillies. He even managed in Philadelphia from 2001 to 2004. Third baseman Mike Schmidt was plagued by injuries during high school and was never even highly recruited as a college athlete. The future Hall of Famer went to Ohio University without even seeing baseball in his future. I was convinced by my parents I needed to learn some kind of an interest outside of sports to pursue, and uh, for me there wasn't any. And then all of a sudden, I got to liking this one class that I had uh, as a senior in high school, and it was what you call drafting. You know, a T-square and a triangle, and um, building a house, you know, using your imagination drawing blueprints, things like that. I really, really enjoyed that stuff. And uh, so I said, hey, uh, maybe I'll become an architect. <laughs> so my plans were to become an architect and a part-time baseball player. Once I got into the baseball program and started to see some success, I switched my major from architecture to the business school, started to think more seriously about being a baseball prospect 
I pursued the degree. I pursued my goals as a baseball player. I was fortunate enough to be injury-free going through college. I, uh, I became a, an All-American baseball player there and in 1971 was drafted by the Phillies. Young pitchers began to arrive as well, like 1973's top draft pick Dick Ruthven, who played for the big league squad right away. Dallas Green went out to Washington State to scout another pitcher, Larry Christensen himself. After seeing him pitch in short sleeves through the cold Seattle spring, Green sent the All-American a maroon, long-sleeved wool shirt. It was a personal touch Christensen remembered, and the Phillies drafted him in 1972. Honestly, I never heard of the Phillies. I thought Phillies were horses. I didn't watch baseball. I, I, you know, there wasn't much on TV. And But I signed with the Phillies, and I was a hard-throwing young right-hander in spring training, and I was invited to big league camp, I remember. And I wasn't very well received by veterans and others. That I And I just kind of mowed guys down and made the team. Really ticked off a lot of guys because I kind of took away a couple of jobs maybe and Ruthven took a job and I took a job of you know the guys drinking buddies it was a different world back then to round out the core group the Phillies signed six foot one 255 pound slugger Greg Luzinski out of high school in Chicago the lovable left fielder who became known as the bull made his debut at 19 years old Bob Boone was selected in the 1969 amateur draft out of Stanford and played as a utility player, primarily at third base. He was then moved to catcher, where he remained for his entire career. No question that what Paul Owens did was probably the biggest break I ever had in the game, is going back to catch. The other thing I use when I'm around the Philly people is saying how lucky they are in Philly that that I went and, and agreed to be a catcher. And everybody would say, why? Because if I, had, if I had said no, you wouldn't know who Mike Schmidt is because I would be the third baseman here. <laughs> yeah, he'd have never beat me out. <laughs> you know, I had heard about the, the players that were coming through at that time, Redding and uh, Eugene was our AAA club out there in the Pacific Coast Lake. So, you know, I'd heard a lot about the Luzinskis and those kind of people and Booney and Mike Schmidt and those kind of players that, that, that we had in the organization. They looked forward to them getting up to the big leagues. And once they got there, uh, you could see they had some special talents. Now, they were, they were not good teams. They were not surrounded by a, a supporting cast enough that they were going to be able to win right away. The Phillies didn't have a winning season through 1972, 73, and 74. But the young core developed well under manager Danny Ozark, who was hired from the Dodgers coaching staff in 1972. Danny was different. Danny kind of le left him alone. Uh, he, he, he basically was of the philosophy, I want to get good coaches around me. I want to instruct, but I don't want to, um, I don't want to get involved too much. That philosophy, as well as his focus on defense and fundamentals, was appreciated by his players, like Greg Luzinski. I think the unique thing, the thing was that Danny let his horses go out there. He said, you guys are going to play as much as you can and try to win it. Uh, you're the guys I, I, I want to <laughs> rely on more or less. Uh, so he did. He put us out there every day. Uh, I think there were years we played 160 to 162 games. 
With a solid framework in place, Paul Owens took chances to improve the ball club. He oftentimes butted heads with Dallas Green as he traded young talent from the farm system for win-now players. But through those trades, the Phillies acquired several key pieces. I think uh, Paul Owens was uh, smart enough to see that uh, the nucleus of our club could use a little help. We traded uh, Willie Montanez for uh, Gary Maddox. That was a great move as far as I'm concerned. Uh, obviously, I was in left field and uh, you know, being able to play with the, the greatest center fielder of the time, obviously, and, and Gary Maddox uh, was a tremendous help, uh, not only to our team defensively, but also to me in left field. I mean, he helped me with a lot of things out there and uh, covered a lot of ground, so uh, it made it a little bit easier, you know. Maddox, who was dubbed the Secretary of Defense, came to the Phillies in 1975 and won eight consecutive gold gloves in center field. Morgan hits it deep to center field. Maddox away back makes the catch right in front of the fence in deep center. Joe gave it a good ride, but caught by Maddox. Two down. Bake McBride, a center fielder for the Cardinals, didn't get along well with new St. Louis manager Vern Rapp over a strict facial hair policy. After signing a three-year extension, he was abruptly traded to the Phillies early in the 1977 season. It worked out for the Phils. Shake and Bake, as he became known, moved to right field and went on to have the best season of his career to that point, shoring up a dynamic outfield. Hit to right field and deep into the corner. Reggie Smith turning and looking, and it's into the bullpen to tie it. McBride, a pinch homer, and a look at McBride's swing, tying the game. Boy, he is quick in there, isn't he? Relief pitcher Ron Reed was traded to the Phillies after a few seasons with the Braves and before that, the Detroit Pistons. Yes, those Detroit Pistons of the NBA. My goal in life was to be a 6'8", power forward in the NBA. And I did not get 6'8", I certainly didn't get any power, but I did manage to sneak into the NBA for a couple of years after I got out of Notre Dame. and. Uh, uh, I, I loved every minute of it. Now, playing in the NBA and playing against the great players of that time, I mean, Will, Oscar, and Bill Russell, and Terry West, and Terry Lucas, and Havlicek. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just the fact that I was on the floor with those guys is, is a great memory. After two NBA seasons, Reed found his love for baseball again and became a lockdown reliever. He was joined in the Phillies' bullpen by Tug McGraw, acquired in a trade after leading the you gotta believe Mets to a pennant in 1973. Doug McGraw gets the sign, goes into the motion. Here's the two strike pitch. Swung on, hit on the ground towards first. Milner has the ball. Looks to McGraw. It's over. The New York Mets have won the pennant. The New York Mets have won the pennant. The New York Mets have won the pennant, and this is a wild scene. McGraw was battling a shoulder injury at the time, but got healthy quickly bringing his dynamic pitching and firecracker personality south down I-95. Arguably, the biggest addition was starting pitcher Steve Carlton. Lefty, as the future Hall of Famer was known, won 27 games for the Phillies in 1972, his first year with the club. As a team, the Phillies won a total of just 59 games. Larry Christensen and his other Phillies teammates remember Carlton's confident strut around the clubhouse on the day of his starts. He would proudly proclaim that this day 
was a win day. He was typically correct. You always wanted to to win like, you know, like a Steve Carlton could win or how players felt playing behind him. So he was a huge influence. With talented veterans like first baseman Dick Allen and catcher Tim McCarver still on the squad, the Phillies won a franchise record 101 games in 1976 and claimed the first of three consecutive National League East Division titles. Suddenly, a team that hadn't won a World Series game since 1915 became the class of the National League. When I first joined the Phillies, we were a lower division team. Mike Schmidt. Uh, Paul Owens uh, brought a great roster of players together, and we got to the point with Carlton and you know, some young pitchers like Christensen and Ruthman, and we, we, we had a great nucleus of players, and we came, became the best team in the National League East. You know, eventually we all became Philadelphia athletes and Philadelphia residents, and sort of grew together in the game, spent time in the offseason together, uh, you know, wives went to the game, sat together, you know, we, we were like one big, uh, one big happy family. We weren't so happy when we lost in the postseason those couple years. Regular season success didn't equate to National League pennants for the upstart Phils. In 76, 77, and 78, the Phillies won the National League East, only to lose in the best-of-five league championship series. 1976 saw the Phillies fall victim to Cincinnati's Big Red Machine, which swept them in three. Played against the Reds, uh, the fact is they were better than us. To me, they beat us, and they were, they were better than us. It was a big red machine, and, and we played pretty good, but it was, there was no flukes to it. They were better. I'll tell you what, just an absolutely incredible performance in the last three years. I really, maybe one of the outstanding teams in the last 30 years in the, in the National League or all of baseball. Bob Boone and several other teammates were quick to point out that in a five-game series, flukes and bad breaks could make or break a season. As the National League's player rep for the Players Association, Boone took that argument right to the top. And I, I'd always complained when I was the charge of the National League that the five-game playoffs are unfair in, in that one mistake, one umpire, bad call can be really hard to overcome. The argument was heard, but the league championship series didn't become a best of seven until 1985. For the next two seasons, the Phillies had to play in two more best of five series to decide the pennant. They saw firsthand how flukes and bad calls could ruin a season. On Friday, October 7th, 1977, the Phillies hosted the Dodgers in Game 3 of the NLCS. The series at that time was tied at a game apiece. Early on, umpiring changed the direction of the game. Larry Christensen started that game on the mound. Uh, Maddox threw a relay throw in from Boa or something, and Bob Boone applied the tag. I'm right backing up the home plate. Harry Wendell says the umpire, and he calls, I think it's Garvey, at home plate, he calls him safe on a slide at home when Boone clearly, he, I'm right on top of it. I said, Harry, you blew it. I'll never forget. He was a nervous wreck. 
he was he knew he blew the call. And I go back to the mound and I'm going, oh man, you know, Harry blew the call. And and then Bert Hooten on the mound when Harry Wendell said, I think trying to make up for his bad call. I mean, Bert Hooten was throwing those knuckle curves right up over the high part of the strike zone, and Harry Wendelstadt was calling every one of them a ball. <laughs> Another one that didn't miss by much. Little bit inside. Boy, that's two pitches that Hooten has thrown to a, that have been oh so close to take. Fans now are really alive. Those fans got engaged and started that, you know, heckling him as he started walking batters and he walked me and I ended up on third base. Ball four, he walked him to force and a run. Well, that's the intimidating influence of Philadelphia fans. And he was throwing pitches right down the middle and Harry Wendelstedt was, he was home plate umpire, was calling them balls for some reason. And you could read Hooten's lips later on where he said, where was that pitch? It's right down the middle. Yeah, it was, it was right down the middle. So the crowd was so intimidating that day that we really had the Dodgers on the run. The Phillies took a two-run lead to the ninth. The events that then transpired would become known in Phillies lore as Black Friday. With Gene Garber on the mound, the Phillies recorded the first two outs of the ninth right away. Baseball Reference lists the Phillies' chances of winning at that point at 99%. Then, Vic Davileo beat out a bunt single and upstep pinch hitter Manny Moda. In left field was Greg Luzinski, who was normally pulled in these situations for the more reliable defensive outfielder Jerry Martin. And I thought I was out of the game. I, I actually was uh, walked up to the clubhouse and uh, was going to change shirts and stuff. And Bobby Wine came in and said, "You're still in the game. Danny wants you in the game because you might have to." you know, have another bat here. With two strikes, Moda hit one deep to left toward Luzinski. A two-strike pitch, fly ball deep left. Luzinski going away back, and this ball is trapped by Luzinski. It's a double for Manny Moda. Gets away, coming in to score Davileo. Moda will hold a third. Luzinski could not pull it off, a double for Moda, and then an error as the ball got away. It's now a 5-4 ball game, and this game not over yet. It was ruled that Luzinski trapped the ball against the left field wall for a hit. Replay seemed to back up the call, but to this day, the bull still believes he had it. To be honest with you, in a ball left field, I don't, I don't think ever hit the wall. You know, if you watch the, the replay, the ball goes up. You go off the tip of my club and goes up. And my reaction was to get the ball to second right away because there was a guy in first and he probably was tagging up. So he shouldn't have been out there. And Jerry Martin came into many, many, many games for defense in left field. And uh, that's a ball that Jerry would have caught. With the tying run now on third, up came the speedy Davy Lopes. Lopes would one day become the first base coach for the 2008 World Champion Phillies. In 77, he was the Dodgers' second baseman. Lopes smacked a liner off Schmidt's glove at third. It took a hard bounce on the dirt directly at Larry Boa, who barehanded the ball and fired to first. Lopes is completely out. And he's out at first base. He's out if you have replay. Ground ball off Schmidt to Boa, a throw, yes, no, not in time. 
This game is tied. Not in time and we have an argument. It went off the glove of Schmidt to Larry Boa. What a recovery by Boa. We have an argument and we'll see the play. Unbelievable circumstance. Oh, so close. Lopes is running a base hit to center field and baby Lopes is gonna score. And the Dodgers have taken a six to five lead in the ninth. What a comeback by the Los Angeles Dodgers. The series was over. I don't care what happened the next night in the rain. Everybody talks about the rain and all that. That that series was over that afternoon when because you don't come back from something that emotional when you're you're that close um, to being in a, in a in a commanding position in the series. The Phillies lost in four to the Dodgers in '77, and in '78 the two teams matched up again in the NLCS. This time, Los Angeles won both games at the Vet and closed the series with a walk-off in extras in Game 4. Dodgers have the pennant at second base. And two out. The 1-0 pitch. It's all over. It's just field for a base hit. Ron Shaving wins and it's all the over. The Jets by Maddox. The Dodgers win the pennant again. So, yeah, I think the frustration was really setting in at that point. Three straight years, you get to the league championship series, and those guys were peaking. They were in the age when their careers were peaking. You knew you were getting near the end of that, that it was going to run its course sooner or later. There were discussions about firing Danny Ozark after the 78 season. There was worry that this group couldn't win it all. But in the offseason before 79, an opportunity presented itself. Free agency was just introduced to baseball three years earlier, and now the Phillies had a chance to sign the biggest name in the game, Pete Rose. Before we get back to the action, let's take a quick pause to hear from our presenting sponsor, Toyota. Dear Phillies fans, drive a true winner, the Toyota Camry. The Camry is the best-selling car in America for 18 years. Now that is a championship tradition. Plus, the Camry, with available all-wheel drive, offers a true competitive edge. Contact your local Toyota dealer or visit buyatoyota.com to get yours today. And you could drive off in victory. Toyota. Based on manufacturer estimates, CY 2002 to 2019 sales, Includes Camry Solera. They were here en masse to watch Pete Rose take batting practice. He leads it off here in game five. And he hits a high drive in the deep right. That was way back. And it is gone. He hits the first pitch for a home run. And the Reds lead very quickly, one to nothing. And a fight breaks out. A fight breaks out. Pete Rose and Buddy Harrelson. Both clubs spill out of the dugouts. Buddy Harrelson and Pete Rose got into it. Rose outweighs Harrelson about 35 pounds. Hard hit ball. Past the second baseman, Gilbert. And Pete Rose has done a base hit in the 44th consecutive game. And Pete Rose moves abreast of Wee Willie Keeler on the all-time list. In 1979, Pete Rose was already a 12-time All-Star and NL MVP. He was the Rookie of the Year way back in 1963. 
If Cincinnati was a big red machine, Pete was its engine, leading the Reds to championships in 75 and 76. Now he was available. Well, you know, Pete Ribson, uh, Larry Bow, uh, myself and Mike Schmidt uh, were friends with Pete. Uh, we played against him in Cincinnati. We after the game, he, you know, we were younger. He he took us to dinner and things of that nature. So, uh, you know, had a little insight into uh, what the nucleus of the Phillies was all about. The guys that had uh, taken like a caravan around the country and uh, talked to different teams and bargained. Uh, their services against teams. Of course, everybody was watching Pete Rose and his trips around the country, and he got he got offered several uh, several very unique things in his travels that year. It, it was so different than the free agency is now because now it's you know they offer him money. Back then, uh, the Roonies uh, involved in Pittsburgh uh, were <laughs> were talking about a thoroughbred race horse for him, and Pete loved the track. So that, that was something that appealed to him. Uh, the Cardinals were talking about a, uh, a distributorship from Budweiser. So those were the kind of things you were going against. The Phillies, Pirates, Cardinals, and Kansas City Royals were all major players in the chase for Pete. Larry Shank had an insider's view of the negotiations. It was Bill Giles, then the Phillies Vice President of Business Operations, who had a massive role in landing Pete. They brought him in. He met Ruley at Ruley's house in Wilmington, and they talked. And the agent told him, told him what they were looking for, and we were not agreeable to that. So Bill was driving the agent and Pete back to the airport. And Bill said, uh, you know, Pete, you come to Philadelphia, you're going to break Stan Musial's record for the most hits in the National League. Nobody will come close to that. You're going to be the man. If you go to Kansas City, you can't set the National League record for the most hits. Planted a little seed, and then Bill called the Taft television station, Channel 17, I think it was owned by Taft Communications, and got them to give us some more money, and we made the offer to Pete. I think Bill said when they were in the car, Pete's agent said, if you get to this number, you got a deal. So Bill went back and worked on it. And uh, there's so much that went into signing him. Um, and, of course, uh, Bill Giles did a tremendous job at that time of getting with our TV partners. And the day I found out about it, uh, typical to my great relationship with Bo over the years, he called me that morning and he said, we got him. I'll never forget this conversation. And I said, what do you mean we got him? He says, we got him. He said, I just heard that Pete said that he's coming to a National League team where he has great friends. And his great friends are me and Bull. You know what happened was that uh, he saw our team for what it was. He was friends with Luzinski and Boa. He knew me. I think he just saw the passion of Philadelphia and saw that it would be a great place to go. And that our future was very strong. He felt like if he could add himself to the mix, we might really have something. And he surely was right. Later in the offseason, a trade with the Cubs gave the Phillies a bench addition in Greg Gross. It also reunited the team with second baseman Manny Trio. The sure-handed, hard-throwing former catcher was converted to an infielder by his minor league manager, Dallas Green. Trio was taken by the Oakland A's in the 1969 Rule 5 draft, but returned to complement what looked to be the best infield in the National League. The Phillies looked like a team ready to get over the hump in 79. Veteran Del Unser 
re-signed with the team after being traded away to the Mets in 74 for Tug McGraw. He had just finished a game of racquetball at a gym in Las Vegas when he called Paul Owens. And Pope told me uh, in his own uh, crotchety ways, well, damn it, you can't make a big league ball club playing that racquetball. Get your ass down here to Florida. Unser was there the very next day, ready for his role as a bat off the bench. Now, as an outsider, he could tell how good this Phillies team had become. But these were these were kids uh, who were now uh, adult, uh, mature major league players that I had come up with in '73 and '74, uh, and just a great crew of minor league players had come up. And now to see them in full blossom, pretty much, you know, you knew there was really something there. The expectations for 1979 were high, but the Phillies could not live up to them. Larry Christensen and Dick Ruthven entered the season with injuries. Manny Trio, Larry Boa, and Greg Luzinski also suffered mid-season injuries that hurt the club. When the Phillies traveled to Atlanta on August 31st, they were a measly 65 and 67. Chris Wheeler traveled with the team to handle PR duties and do the broadcast. He was sitting in his hotel room in Atlanta during the afternoon before the series began, when his phone began to ring. And it's Pope, and he says, uh, I need you up in my room right away. I said, okay, I'll be right up. Uh, so I'm thinking, what the heck's this about? You know, he made a trade or, you know, with Paul Owens, you never knew because he was such, he was aggressive. He would do things. So I walk into this great big suite, and I, I walk into the room, and I see Pope standing there. And, of course, he always had a cigarette in his hand, you know. And, and he's, he's got the cigarette in his hand. He's looking right at me, and I look to my right, and sitting on the couch in the suite is Big D. Dallas Green sitting there. Pope sees me look at D, and I look back at him, and he goes, uh, I guess you know why you're here. <laughs> I said, yeah, I know why I'm here. Danny Ozark had been fired after nearly seven seasons leading the Phillies. His replacement was the large and loud farm director, Dallas Green. Chris Wheeler called Larry Shank in Philadelphia, then quickly gathered the traveling media to break the news. The players found out soon as well, and when they did, they weren't shocked, but they also weren't happy. It was really kind of a sad day for all of us that Danny got fired and that Dallas was going to take over. Larry Christensen. Danny didn't really deserve that. He was he was kind of a player's manager. He kind of took the brunt of everything, and and, and Danny's door was always open. Danny was a nice a nice guy, and and all, but, you know, you, you can't fire the players as easily as you can fire the manager. One of his great strengths, I think, was that he left them alone, and one of his great weaknesses was that he left them alone because they got too comfortable. They were really good, but they couldn't quite get over the hump, and I think Danny Diss wasn't the guy that was going to be able to do that, and I've always felt it's unfair to blame the manager for that. But in this case, you could see that something had to change. Danny was a great guy, I think, to get them to the point where they could finally be really good, but not quite the guy that could push them past, uh, push them over the finish line. Dallas Green was now the interim manager, but even he was not jumping at the opportunity. Dallas wanted to be in the front office and eventually replace the Pope as GM once he retired. But Owens told him he couldn't become a GM without managerial experience. 
Owens had learned a lot when he decided to manage the Phillies system in 1972. It was why he had Green manage the Phillies minor league team in Huron, South Dakota early in his career. Now he wanted him to get big league experience. Green trusted the Pope and accepted the position, but he was going to do it his way, the Dallas Green way. And it was obvious from the start that the Phillies were getting a very different manager in Big D. And Dallas came in uh, <laughs> with a brimstone and fire the first day. He basically had a little meeting that night and basically told him, uh, boys, you're going to turn the page right now because I'm here and things are going to be different. We went from a kind of a player's type manager to a to a, a bellowing, voiceful, different type guy with Dallas, you know. Led by Green, the Phillies finished a disappointing 1979 season in fourth place. It was time to turn the page. The year now was 1980. A talented team was still in place, only now it was healthier and just as dangerous. But time was running out for this group of veterans aiming to win a title. And this season, they were set for a much different managerial experience. No matter how long you'd been with the club, it was now Dallas's way or the highway. If you wanted to win, you had to do it with Dallas. You had to do it as a team. And that was made very obvious to everyone when the Phillies arrived in Clearwater for a spring training unlike any other. Stay tuned each week for new episodes of Phillies Throwbacks, presented by Toyota. Episodes will be available on phillies.com or wherever you find your favorite podcast. In Episode 2, we explore the 1980 regular season and the Phillies' clashes with manager Dallas Green. He was yelling so loud that the writers verbatim got every word he said, and they, it was in the paper the next day, and everyone saying, how'd that happen? They were standing out in the hallway, and the guys still, you know, laugh about that, that they could hear, you know, almost every word he was saying in there, and, and the things he was saying about them, and that you're going to do this, and you're going to do that, and I'm here, and, and you're not getting rid of me like you got rid of the other guy. And that. In episode three, we go down the stretch run of the 1980 regular season as the Phillies put it together with time running out. It, that spring training, Willie Carpenter, he, he got a few of us guys together and said, hey guys, you know what, you got to do it, you got to get over the hump or I'm going to have to tear this team apart. And he says, I don't want to do that. In episode four, we go into the Astrodome where the Phillies played the Houston Astros in one of the loudest and most competitive series in playoff history. I remember standing at third base one time and the noise was so loud I had to drop my glove and cover my ears. Swing and a drive right center field. Maddox is there! <laughs> and finally, in episode five, we reach the promised land as the Phillies battle the Kansas City Royals for a shot at World Series glory. The crowd will tell you what happens. 